Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about uh, the plagues and try to try to wrap our minds around um, just what was going on with those and just maybe a, a different aspect and how it uh, applies to us um, today. Um, and just talk about just what it means to leave Egypt. So I heard, uh, for me, uh, what I thought was a, a, a remarkable uh, idea yesterday, it was said in the name of Rabbi Tendler, um, formerly of uh, Eula here in Los Angeles. And basically he's, he's, he's asking like a, a great question. Um, and just, just methodologically, what, what I love about this question is it's, it's very pshat-driven. In other words, it's, it's just kind of going on the, on the most basic level. But when you, when, you, when you follow the most basic timeline of the plagues, we'll speak out the question in a second, you'll see an, an enormous question arises. Okay, so what's the, what's, what's, what's the question? The question is, um, the Gomorrah says that, that the Jews, if they hadn't left after the last plague was over, the time of the 10th plague, that's the, the death of the firstborn, if they hadn't left that moment, they would have sunk down to the, the bottom level of, of impurity and they would have been trapped in Egypt. Okay? So, so the question, the question as, as Rabbi Tendler speaks it out, the question is the following which is that we know that once the plague started and, and the timeline of the plagues was there was one per month and there was sort of a, a week of warning beforehand and then there was um, you know the time afterwards for them to digest it and to do tshuva and to get their act together. So they were rolling out a, a month at a time. Once the plague started, the Jews were no longer in this status of um, active servitude. In other words, we were still trapped in Egypt. We were still... It, it, to that extent, slaves in Egypt, but the, the slavery part of slavery, that sort of forced working and all the torment that came from that, sort of once the plague started rolling out, that, that, that went aside. So in other words, for 10 months, the Jews were, so to speak, not slaves. They were not slaves. So if they were not slaves for 10 months, why was it, now revisiting the question, why was it that there was this rush to take the Jews out as soon as the 10th plague was over. Not only that, but it says in the Torah that God took us out on eagles' wings, which Rashi brings meant that God took us out very quickly. Again, to emphasize this notion that once the plagues were over, we had to get out of there. But um, if we had been essentially sitting around more or less for 10 months... Why at that moment was there, was there such a urgency? And not only an urgency, but a sense that if we didn't leave immediately at that point, we were never getting out. So, <clears throat> the Kutzker famously points out, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a Rashi that says that, that when, when the plague of the um, death of the firstborn happened, that that Paro was aroused, and, and Rashi brings a, one word to say, what does it mean that he, he got up? It says he got up from his bed. So the Kutzker Rebbe remarks that, you know something? That's the tenth plague. Nine times Moshe Rabbeinu has accurately predicted some wild phenomena 
Some, something that you couldn't possibly predict unless God was telling you himself what was about to happen. Accurately predicts and when it's coming and exactly when it's going. And now for the tenth plague, God communicates to Paro that there's going to be the death of his firstborn and he goes to sleep in his bed. Right? That, that's, the, that's the power of this one word, that he awoke from his bed. That He woke from his bed, you know why? Because he went to sleep in his bed. You know what that means? That means that it was business as usual for him. Meaning to say that after these nine plagues, there hadn't been a fundamental change in terms of who he was as a person or how he was reacting. Now here's, here now we're going to put it all together and kind of make the point because this, this made a big impact on me. Why did the Jews have to be taken out after the 10th plague immediately? Because if you experience a miracle and if you don't respond in some new way, in some changed way, that you can actually suffer a further spiritual decline as a result of experiencing a miracle. That, that's a very big idea. In other words, I, I, I sort of hear like if someone were just to come up to you and say, oh, you experienced this miracle, that should change you. Okay, so, okay, but let's sort of think out the rest. But if it doesn't change me, it's not such a big deal. It's not great, but it's not a, it's not a big deal, right? I mean, I should be more appreciative in my life. I really should be more appreciative, more grateful. But if I'm not, okay, so, okay, I'm, I'm not the greatest person in the world. I'm not the worst person in the world. But this is actually saying something very different. This is saying that if someone experiences like a miracle and doesn't actively change in some sort of way, that it's actually to their detriment that they actually decline. And so now just to plug it back into the whole, to the whole um, circumstance of leaving Egypt, if after the 10th plague, when it was now time to leave, so this was going to be the big transformative moment where all the Jews become now the nation of Israel, right? This is like, now it's like the march to Mount Sinai. Now it's sort of like revealing like the oneness of God and sort of like the game plan of the world, the Torah mitzvahs, in a way that we've never had before. This is what's on the line right now. If we hadn't actively left and made an active change, an active effort at that moment in response to all of this stuff right now, we would have essentially been a ruined people. We would have been a trapped, ruined, destroyed people at that point. So, to me, I, I know, you know, I've, if you've listened to these talks over the years, I've, I've experienced all sorts of just, just wild coincidences, all, all, all sorts of things. And it's sort of like, so I, I take this as a, an especial warning to me. That's maybe why this made such an impression on me because it's sort of like if someone sort of becomes um, sort of used to it, used to miraculousness, right? That's a, that's a very dangerous state to be in. Very dangerous state to be in. You know, I, with all things, with all things, it's, it's, you know, to use that fancy word, it's a dialectic. Meaning to say, of course Hashem can do anything. So I, I, it is on some level, a, a, a madrega, a, a, a spiritual level, 
not to be surprised? Because why should I be surprised? If God is all-powerful, God can do absolutely everything, why should I be surprised? That, that at a certain point in a person's spiritual development, or depending on the week or the day or whatever it is, that in itself can be a growth moment. The growth moment being, I'm not surprised because why should I be In other words, that's the surprise that I'm not surprised. So there's actually, there actually is a growth moment there. But if a person gets to the place where they're just stomped, just as a, just their, their way of being is just not surprised, and it's not just this wild revelation of, I'm not surprised, look how great it is that I'm not surprised, because I know that God can do miracles all the time. No, I'm just not surprised. <laughs> then, then that's not great. Right? You can be not surprised as long as it's in a surprising way. But you can't be not surprised in an unsurprised way. Because that just means that it didn't make an impact. So, okay. So now that we've introduced this idea, and, and, and there, there are certain things a person can do. Like a very easy, like someone was telling me the, the other day, their, their um, mom experiences health crisis, and then they're better. And, and I said to them just, without even thinking, I said, give charity, right? So that there's, there has to be some sort of reaction. There has to be some sort of reaction. That's a very easy reaction because that, it's an active effort, whatever it is, it's a coin in a box or it's a check, whatever the person's level is. But at least that's a, there's, there's, a, there's a response, right? That's, that's, there, Rabbi Weinberg calls the, the, um, the charity box the, the thank you machine, <laughs> right? So there's, at least, that's, that's a minimum. That's a minimum. And then, depending upon the person and depending on, on how serious we are and how focused we are, we can come up with additional responses, right? But that then becomes, you know, requires work and thinking and, okay, so what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Okay. But let's, now that we've introduced this idea of the, the plagues in general, I want to sort of go further go further in terms of just trying to wrap our minds around um, what they were. And, and this, was, this was new for me, so I want to share it with you. And, you know, it says that the, that the Jews didn't listen to Moshe Rabbeinu um, because of Kotzeruach, which means a, a shortness of breath, if you will, or a shortness of um, sort of uh, spirit. Um, and... I'll give you just sort of a, a couple of classical understandings of, of what that phrase means. So, so Paro, Pharaoh wanted to make sure that we weren't able to process the redemption that was taking place by overwhelming us with work. Like if I can just keep them really just, just ah, there's just too much work to do, right? I can stop them from processing their thoughts. So that's almost like a, um, a physical exhaustion. Like, have you ever just been so tired you can't think straight, right? That's, a, that's, that's kind of what Paro is focused on. Um, another level of it is, is just uh, the Yetzirah. That the Yetzirah is going to be so strong, all this, our negative thinking is going to be so strong that we're not going to be able to focus. We can't hear Moshe Rabbeinu. We can't process the redemption that's taking place because I'm just too stressed out. My mind is just too filled with chatter in order to sort of process what, 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 what the next steps are, what the, what the game plan is. Okay, so those are some classic understandings of what it is. 
So I want to tell you what the Chedush Rim says. The Chedush Rim says that we weren't able to listen to Ro- Moshe Rabbeinu and because of the idol worship that we were involved in. So now this is, this is very interesting. And by the way, he also says, he also says that even though it says that we weren't able to hear it, he says, no, they heard it anyway, <laughs> which, which I love. And it reminds me of something that, you know, I was privileged to have the opportunity to hear Rabbi Shlomo Karlach teach many times. And he would teach for hours, you know, he would play the guitar and then, you know, that was more of a meditative exercise. And, you know, during those sessions, many new melodies came down into the world. And then he'd say over something very deep and then he'd sing again. And it was more, again, this meditative thing. And then he'd build on what he had said before and he would go for hours, you know. And um, anyway, every once in a while there would someone would be, you know, someone would fall asleep, you know, because it would be late and people would fall asleep. And I remember more than once, actually, someone sort of like looking at Reb Shlomo, who was sitting next to the person who was, was, was asleep, and sort of like looking to him like, what, what should I do? Should I wake him up? You know? And more than once I heard Reb Shlomo go, you know, it, he said, no, 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 the, these teachings are so deep that they, they, they cut right through. Like, he's going to, even while he's asleep, he's going to be able to hear them. <laughs> and, and some part of him is going to be able to absorb them. So, so, so the Chidush Arim says that, that when it says that, we couldn't hear Moshe Rabbeinu because we were just so physically and mentally and spiritually exhausted. The Chidush Arim says, no, we still, we, we still heard. We still heard Moshe Rabbeinu. We still heard. Because how can you not? Like, when Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking these words, how can you not hear? Okay. But what's this idol worship thing? What's this idol worship part? We know that the Jews were involved with idol worship before we left um, Egypt. And, you know, you have different times that it's made reference to. But, but, but now, this is like the first time that I actually heard it in this context from the Chedusha Rim that it was actually holding us back holding us back from processing what Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to do, that what, what Hashem was trying to do. So now I'm just going to kind of give you my, my understanding of it, right? What, what, why were we drawn to this idol worship to begin with? What, what, how was it helping us? How did we think it was helping us? And how was it holding us back? Okay, so um, I'm just going to give you my idea, and it'll be mixed in a little bit with the Chidush Harim as well. I'll try to tell you who's speaking when so you can keep your sources straight. First, let me uh, mention something that I learned from my father, Allah Shalom. So he said that, and I'm talking about right now the Jews and idol worship, but I'm talking about all of us right now. Why do people stay in relationships? Okay, and why do people stay in relationships, especially when they're negative relationships? All right, this is the question. And my father was a, a, a psychologist for practice for 50 years. And he said that people stay in relationships because it answers a need. Okay, and it, by the way, it can be a relationship with a person. It can be a relationship with substance abuse. It can be a relationship with absolutely anything. Why do people stay in the relationship? It's because it's answering a need. So, so for instance, let's say someone is in, God forbid, an abusive relationship. 
right? So you, you, you ask yourself, well, what need could that be answering, right? Well, if I have a very low self-esteem and I think hardly about myself and the other person is calling me all sorts of names, and this is dysfunctional. We have to understand that this is dysfunctional. But what they are doing is positively, in re positively reinforcing my negative self-image. Do you understand? They are actually serving a purpose for me. They are helping me feel bad about myself, which is a state for whatever reason I want to be in. Right? So the, so the primary dysfunction of someone who is in a, a dysfunctional relationship or in, a, in an abusive relationship is their own relationship with themselves. Do you understand? To get to the core of it, their relationship with themselves. Because if they can escape the need to, to have that need to be negatively reinforced, if they don't need that anymore, then they no longer need the other person who they're in the abusive relationship with. Do you understand? Okay. So, with that in mind, and I think that that's just something we should all know about ourselves and relationships and everything like that. With that in mind, let's revisit this idea, what's going on with Jews and idol worship? Right? So what need... So we're saying that the idol worship is answering a need. But what need is the idol worship answering? Do you hear the question? So here I would like to suggest the following. What is the... What is the X factor of life? What is the X factor of life? What is the most terrifying aspect of life? Right? So I would suggest fear, the unknown, and change. Fear, the unknown, and change. And all of those things are sort of like all kind of isotopes of each other. Right? They're all kind of variants of each other. So what is what what is what is what does idol worship do? Idol worship breaks down all of reality, right, into individual components. Rain, fertility, love, money, right? It takes all of the moving parts of life and isolates them and gives you a, a direct address to each one of these things. And now you are able to exert control over these variables in life when before you're just helpless before them. Okay? Now, I saw from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Olive Shalom who pointed out a very important um, foundation about idol worship, which is it's more really about the individual who's doing the idol worship than the, than the statue itself. In other words, the psycho-spiritual the, the psycho dynamic, if you will, is more about empowering the individual than worshiping some piece of wood or stone. Okay? Because it's putting you in control. See, like the real dynamic is, is that you, so to speak, are becoming the God. That's, that's the very interesting part of it. And, and one of the places where we learn that out by, by the way, is it says Paro, when Paro was dreaming, it says that he was standing above the Nile. Now, the Nile was one of the gods of Egypt. But isn't it interesting that 
he who supposedly is worshipping the Nile in his dream state is standing above the Nile. Because really it's about you being in control. That's what idol worship is about. It's about you being in control, not thinking that this piece of stone or wood is in control, which of course is ridiculous. So it's this assertion of control. But also it's this sort of like this, this, this sense of taking all of the variables of life and being able to be like the puppet master of them. Okay? So when you think of it in that way, idol worship actually is offering a positive feedback in this relationship. Okay. Now, there's an aspect to the plagues that is very important to the plagues, and at least, I'm just speaking for myself, is overlooked, I think, quite a bit. Because normally speaking, the, the plagues themselves are so kind of wild and dramatic, like boils and blood and lice and, you know, ice being on fire, right? Ice on fire, that's big, right? Darkness that's so palpable that you can't stand out of your chair. You can't get out of your chair because it's not just dark out. The darkness has a thickness to it, a viscosity, right? Like, what do you do with that? So meanwhile, you're so sort of like amazed and, you know, hypnotized, so to speak, by the enormity and the, the wonder of the plagues that there's a certain detail that gets lost. What's that detail? The detail is that Moshe Rabbeinu said each time before the plague, this is going to come at a certain time. And at the end, he goes, and this is when it's going to leave. Do you see there's a bookend there's a bookend around every plague. This is when, remember, what did we say before? We said that one of the, that the greatest X factor in life, that thing that we sort of fear the most, is the unknown and change. Now, isn't it interesting that this construct of change, which is like, what's more change than all of a sudden all the blood is, all the water's turning into blood? That's, that is change. Isn't it interesting that around each change, there's a predicted and reliable border on each side of the change? In other words, God is putting into the world, God is putting into the world that he controls all change. Do you hear I'm going to say that again? This is, this is, this is big. What are the plagues? Let's just boil it down to one sentence. God is putting into the world that he is the one who controls all change. Now from that, the Chidush brings the Katzka Rebbe, who gives you a phenomenal one-line definition of what Amuna is. You ready? Amuna is translated as belief. Now there are many, many definitions of Amuna. But this is a tremendous working definition of Amuna. You ready? Amuna is the understanding that God controls the natural order of the world. Right? Or said another way, Amuna is the understanding that God controls Teva. 
The, the reason why that's so big is because, you see, there's, there's so many stripes of belief. Like, can you imagine two people meet, meet each other? You believe? I, I also believe. In, in what? In what? In what? In God. I also believe in God. I'll tell you something. I was, I was, uh, I had to go to like this event this week, right? And so because of the nature of the event and the organization and everything like that, I, 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 I had a driver. So, so I was talking with the driver and, uh, you know, he's asking me questions about what I'm up to and this and that. And so I said, well, you know, I'm working on this thing. And he goes, well, you know, I hope whatever it goes well or whatever it is. And I said, I said, well, that's, that's, that's up to God. You know, that's in God's hands. And he says to me, what did you say? <laughs> I said, I said, it's, it's up to God. He, and then he said, and I'm, this is a quote, he said, that's a word you don't hear in Los Angeles much. <laughs> I was, it was, it was like a moment, you know? And then we had a very, uh, then, it, then for the next hour, it like, got really deep between the two of us. And it was very, very interesting, very interesting. For another time, maybe. Okay, but anyway. So you can, you can meet someone, and it's sort of like, you believe, I believe. What do you believe in? I believe in God. I also believe in God. This is amazing. This is amazing. Like we, like we have like our core, our cores are, are like in harmony with each other, right? This is, I, I found a, a soulmate. Hey, what do you, what do you, when you say you believe in God, what, what do you believe? Well, I believe that there's a power who abandoned the world at its inception. <laughs> and when he does occasionally revisit, it's mostly out to take vengeance and destroy me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so you believe in a vengeful, but mostly absent power. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not what I believe in. You see, so to believe in God has as many many different levels to it. As many many different levels to it. Just because you say you believe in God doesn't mean that you're even in the same universe as someone else who's telling you that they believe in God. Right? When we talk about belief in God from the Torah standpoint, we talk we talk about belief in an all-powerful God who's intimately involved in every aspect of creation, and who is good. That, that's, that's, a, that's a very, that is a very, very strong point of view. And when we say God, that is what we mean. We don't mean anything other than that. So, so, so a lot of people believe in God, but they don't believe that God controls nature. They don't believe that all the events of, of their life is coming from God. They just believe in a creator. So, so, but, so according to the Kutzka Rebbe now, that's not, that's not what we would call Amuna. He's saying, what is Amuna? Amuna is understanding that God is the understanding, the belief that God controls nature. Okay. So now let's, let's go further. Because to revisit the Chidush Erin, He's saying that, that we weren't hearing Moshe and we weren't able to leave Egypt because, because of idol worship. And that this idol worship was like holding us back. All right? 
Now, it says in the Torah that we were building these treasure cities, uh, Pitom and Ramses, and that basically these cities were, as we were building them, they were collapsing. Okay, and there's different ways of understanding that. One way of understanding is that, that, that the Egyptians had us build them on quicksand, so that the actual, there was no real foundation. So everything was sort of sinking as we were building them. And there are other versions where the, just the buildings, the, the, just the structures themselves were falling apart. Now we were building them out of Chomer, right? With bricks and mortar. So Chomer really means like, like very physical stuff. Bricks and mortar, okay? So the Chedush brings a Zohar that says that on a deeper level, that Chomer, right, which means building materials, right, that Chomer is actually referring to a Kava Chomer. Kava Chomer is um, one of the logical ways that we derive truth from the Torah. Okay, so a Kava Chomer would be if this is true, how much more so this is true. Okay, so it's a way to build logical inferences and to be able to draw out ever more increasing levels of truth from a foundation, from a premise, okay? So now let's just take a moment to appreciate the beauty of what the Zohar is saying, okay? You've got physical structures being built with chomer, right? With these building materials, with this brick and mortar, but they're saying that it also parallels a kalachomer, which is logical principles, which are also like buildings being erected in our minds. Do you see the parallel between physical structures and logical structures that are being erected? Everyone see that parallel? Okay. So what's the problem? The problem is, is that it says that these physical structures were falling apart, which also means that these logical structures are falling apart because they're based on the wrong premises, the wrong premise. Meaning to say, let's use another word for logical structures that are falling apart. Let's use another term that's a little more relatable. How about rationalizations? People construct rationalizations in their mind why I can't do this or why I have permission to do that. These are rationalizations. And a lot of times it's like, well, God, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'll just do it as I see fit. These are examples of structures that are going to fall apart and that can't last. So it says that after we, it says that we did tshuva. And then, and the Chedusharim says that, he, he's analyzing the Rambam and he says that it says, after we did tshuva, then we were able to leave Egypt. Remember, what was stopping us from leaving Egypt? Idol worship. But once we understand that God is control of all change, and not only aren't these idols, but we ourselves are not in control of this level of change, but that God is in control of all change, 
Then all of a sudden our thinking is now on solid footing and now we're able to leave Egypt. Now I just want to tell you, there's something that sounded very sort of simple and logical, but I just want to just drill down into how remarkable that little sequence was, okay? So I always think about this, I, I forgot who said it, but it's a, one of the rules of writing a play, okay? So normally in a play you have a three-act structure. So in the first act of the play it says, it says that if you show a gun in the first act, it better go off in the third act. <laughs> okay? That's just storytelling. That's just, that's just how you construct a story. Do you understand? So in the beginning of this thought, what did we say? We said that we were building structures, Petom and Ramses, that were falling apart. If that's the first act, I would suggest that the third act is, and then we did tshuva, and then the structures didn't fall apart anymore. Okay? But think about that. that. That's really a drag, actually. And it doesn't say that. It says, it says we did tshuva, and then we left Egypt. <laughs> it should say, we did tshuva, and then the structures didn't fall apart anymore. But if, the if, that, if that were the case, that we did tshuva and the structures didn't fall apart anymore, what does that mean? That means that we're just back in the condition of being slaves again. But according to the laws of tshuva, what happens is we, we did tshuva and then we left Egypt. In other words, when a person does tshuva, they go to a new place. It's not just that they go to a better version of the old place. A better version of the old place would be now we're building these structures and they're not falling apart, but dot, 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 we're still slaves in Egypt. <laughs> We're still in the old place. No, tshuva, tshuva allows you to go to a brand new place. That's, that's amazing. So it, it says, so it says that after we did tshuva, we left Egypt. <laughs> so, so let's just, let's just go back for a moment, just cover some of the points that we said. When miraculous stuff happens in front of, in, in, to us, in front of us, we have to react in some way. You know? Even if it's just a, you know, just, okay, I'm checking my little change pocket, putting it in a tzedakah box. Whatever it is, some sort of action, whatever it is. And then, as a, at a minimum, at a minimum, and then a person can work on customizing it, and what's, what's an even better version of that? But, but, but a, an action is a, a reaction to the inspiration. A reaction is necessary because, as Rabbi Tendler brought, which is this very scary, devastating thought, that, that some great thing, if it, if, if it happens to you and you don't have a proper reaction to it, it can actually be damaging. It can actually be damaging. Right? So, so, so we want to protect ourselves against that. Alright? So, because the last thing I would ever want to be um, immune to is inspiration. Can you imagine? To be immune to inspiration? To, be, to become desensitized 
to inspiration, that would be a super bummer. Like, we, we really don't want that. Okay. So, so to create some sort of beachhead, whatever it is, some, some basic action, and then a person can build on it. But, but I'm telling you right now, and because I know for myself, there's no obvious answer to, to what you do. I'm suggesting just a coin in a box because that's just like, at least it's something. And then you can work from there, right? But, but to really absorb this lesson, we have to be a little bit creative. And that will, it's actually going to require some thinking and some work. Okay, so just, just so you know. The next thing is understanding that we remain involved in relationships because they answer a need. Okay, if you are involved in a relationship that you feel is negative and it can be with a person or a substance or whatever it is, you have to figure out what need is it answering within yourself. Okay, that's, that's number two. Number three, understanding that God controls all change. And that the way that the, the, the hallmark of change is put into the world, which is the, the plagues, that God said he was going to do it before it happened, and he told you it was going to go away at the end, to show you that God himself is controlling all change. And that a working definition of a muna, of faith, is understanding God controls Teva. Right? So, maybe we'll just conclude with a, just a bit of imagery, which is that something enormous and beautiful, right, is being constructed in front of our faces. And you know what it is? It's our lives. <laughs> but sort of like the scary X factor is we don't know exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and I had this experience this past week where I've been watching this building. It's, 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 uh, it's been on the corner of, of La Cienega and Melrose. And it's um, on the... Uh, southwest corner and it's it always it's it has always appeared to me to be one of the most I don't want to use a negative word so let's say unique (laughs) (laughs) it's a unique building it's 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 pink black and white (laughs) You, you might know the building it is really like there is Nothing like it in L.A., and many people would say for a reason. <laughs> and I, I remember for years just driving by this thing and just kind of going, really? You know? And that's why it didn't really surprise me when, going back a few months now, they started dismantling this building, but not the building itself, just the outside of the building. <laughs> Because I don't know what the backstory is. I think it's possible they were trying to sell it and no one was buying it. I, I don't know what was going on, but there was they finally sort of had their 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 moment of truth and they said, we gotta redo this place. You know, it's just, you know, we, we, we rolled the dice, you know? Okay, we gotta do something now. So over the last several months they've been redoing the outside of the building and they've been going very, very slowly. And I've just kind of been watching it as I drive by occasionally and just thinking like, you know, I don't know what they have in mind, but it doesn't really seem to be any better. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not seeing why they poured so much money into this reconstruction. 
And then this past week I drove by and like suddenly they put up the last several pieces and it's beautiful. It's like such a, such a happy ending to the story. It looks like a completely different structure. It's beautiful. It's actually beautiful. It's like, yes, you guys did it, you know? So, so I'm just relating it to our lives for a moment, which is that there is this structure going up in front of our eyes. And there's a sense of fear, which is like, what's it going to look like, right? What's it going to look like? Like, can you imagine, like, like there's like this construction site that doesn't seemingly have any supervision. And it's like, people could read all the materials or burn it down or like vandalize it or who knows what's going to happen. So, so now we have to add one final point, one big point, which is that each plague came as a reaction to Paro. Was Paro going to do the will of Hashem or not? See, this is where we come in. This is where we come in. Because, because all of the change that's being put into the world and all of the change that's being put into our lives is ultimately a reaction to us. Was Paro going to let the Jews go or not? Are we going to do X, Y, Z or not? And that was the, the point of departure, the, the, the jumping off point for each of the aspects of change that then enter into the world. So it begins with us. So we are, so to speak, the co-architects to change. And we have to recognize our essential role in this unfolding process, right? We never stop being partners with God in terms of the ongoing creation of the world and the ongoing revelation of our lives. The following are some questions and some answers. So to continue on that, uh, the tenth plague, that's uh, in the Parsha, I believe, that this week, it's a pretty heavy-duty, uh, I mean, amazing, mind-blowing thing. How, yeah. specifically the tenth plague, how would you suggest we um, use that as a, as a lens to look at something this week? To that's like a, yeah. Right, so, so, so again, it says that, uh, that Paro woke up from his bed, which means he went to bed, which means that he had become completely desensitized to the first nine plagues. So I would say one, one idea uh, is just to look back on our lives, to try to catalog on some level how, how we've seen God's hands in our life. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that, that if we know that God is actively involved in our life, God doesn't change. Then he remains active in our life. Mm-hmm. So how do we want to sort of like reapproach sort of just being alive from an active understanding that God is right here, right now. Thank you, first of all. Um, so my question kind of includes the Muna, Muna versus Bitochon situation with the last thing that you were talking about. So Amuna and Bitochon, so according to the Chidushe Arim, Amuna is just the understanding that God is in control and Bitochon is believing that it's the best thing for us, I'm assuming. Okay, so he didn't speak out that, that part of it, that part of it, and he was quoting the Kutzker on that. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps I can infer yeah, that. Okay. And then based on what he quoted from the Zohar, that it's basically the way that we need to respond to the Amunah that Hashem is in control of the natural world is that our responses are logical structures that we create understanding that. 
Right, exactly, right. with understanding that as a premise. Understanding yes. that as a premise, right. and so if perhaps we can learn from the way the Jews responded to each of the Mako, we may have been out earlier if we truly believed that Paro was going to let us, that Hashem was going to help Paro let us I don't go. know, I don't know, I don't know about that, because it seems that God really wanted to bring these ten plagues into okay. the world. So I don't know if we would have gotten out any faster. Maybe we would have gotten out faster than 210 years or whatever it was, possibly. Because but it seems like once those 10 plagues started, that that was, that was a, a complete cycle okay. that Hashem wanted to do, seemingly. Okay, because I find it really interesting that Shomavim happens right now, these, these portions of us going in, into Egypt and out of Egypt um, is happening at kind of the darkest time of the year. Time really having us have to work on our belief in one God controls nature because it's the middle of winter and we have no idea in California especially it seems like winter right. and we need this rain so much yeah. that it's really kind of teaching us okay God is in control believe God is in control and believe it's for the good because by doing that you're gonna kind of accept what it is but but create the structure for better essentially yeah the, the Hadusha room says a couple of interesting things one is that um, that that Well, that reading about leaving Egypt and all these things right now are sort of like, this is the beginning process for us to prepare for Pesach. Okay. Which I, I thought that was interesting because, you know, the, the standard idea is that you start preparing for a holiday 30 days in advance. But seemingly to, to really leave Egypt, that, that takes a, a few months at least of preparation. So that's why these Parshas are coming, not during Pesach, but right now because it we, we really have to be preparing for, for, for leaving Egypt, for what Pesach means. And just in terms of the plagues, just on a different subject, I don't know if you guys saw this. This was um, over the last uh, week and a half, but this sort of blew my mind. I, I'm always sort of scanning headlines all the time, right? So within days of each other, these two, these two headlines were in the paper, which is that it was so cold in Florida that frozen iguanas were falling out of trees, right? Right? Not, not only that, but in Australia, simultaneously, it was so hot, it was so hot, 116 degrees, that bats were boiling in the sky and falling out of the sky dead. Did you hear that? Frozen iguanas are falling out of trees in Florida, and bats are being boiled in the sky and falling down dead in Australia. And then all of this while a snowfall in the Sahara Desert. No way. Yeah, yeah, you can see pictures of it. It's beautiful, actually. It's remarkable. So anyway, it's just interesting while we're reading about all the plagues, right? That this is going on. Just, just a, just a wild kind of aside, but interesting. Just gave me a great album title. It's Raining Bats and Iguanas. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> okay, this is a. Way too broad question to be answered right now, and you may even say, I don't know if I'm the one to answer this. Okay. But Can I say that now? <laughs> you may surprise yourself. Um, so, talking about relationships, whether dysfunctional or healthy, yeah. and why we stay in them, let's say we're talking about a marriage, or even a marriage to be. Now, we permit divorce but we value marriage. So then the question becomes if a relationship 
let's say, degenerates into a very unhealthy relationship, at which point it could stay that way, get worse, or go back. The go back was what happened with my brother who was married 30 years, went to hell and then full circle. So, how do you know when, when getting out of it is the best thing for everyone involved? Or, or yeah, I would say so. I would I would say that there's no, I, I would say there's every case is going to be individual. Sure. You know every every case is going to be individual, yeah. and either I I, I I don't think you can ever generalize about something like that. I, can I I want to say a completely separate thought. Don't confuse this as an answer to your thought. Okay. It's a completely separate thought. Okay. But it's something that every once in a while, like couples who are getting married, like I get a chance to talk with them and things like that, and and. Uh, what, one thing that, that I think is important in terms of at the beginning of a marriage, anyway, and again, this is not an answer to your question, but it just makes me think of it. I think it's very important for a couple when they get married um, is, like I, I heard one time something that really sort of depressed me, which is that, that many, for many couples, getting engaged means that this means we're dating more seriously. <laughs> like, like, to me, that's... That's a horrendous thought. No, uh, this engagement is basically at that point you're married and committed for life. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean you're dating more seriously. Come on, get get real. You know, um, you you get engaged because you are are essentially getting married, but it's just this temporary thing while you tie up some loose ends before the actual marriage ceremony. Okay, that's 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 an aside. But when someone enters into a marriage. They enter into it understanding that this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life and that I am going to make this work and that every part of me is going to make this work and that there is no alternative other than making this work as opposed to sort of like, well, check it out. Hopefully we'll get along. If we don't, we, eh, and I've got 10 contingency plans in mind. Or No, 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 no. This is what it is. This is what it is. And, and I personally... And each person in the marriage should say this, and both should fully mean it. I personally am taking complete and total responsibility for making the marriage work. Each partner should say that, saying that each one is going to be the last, the last sort of like whatever, insurance that it will 100% work. So you've got both people saying it's 100% going to work. Because I'm going to make sure of that. That's the only way, in my opinion, to enter into a marriage. If a person's not entering into a marriage with that level of commitment, then forget it. Forget it. You know, it's, it, it, it's, as Rip Shlomo would say, it's cute and it's sweet, but it, don't do it. <clears throat> I was wondering, um, you mentioned that idol worship was keeping us from leaving Egypt. Right. Okay. Um, I, I, I have a I, I don't quite, I don't quite understand it. Now we know that only a small percentage of the Jews left Egypt. Well, okay? that that could tie in very right. nicely with that. Okay. Yeah. However, um, having seen the plagues, what could have, the, what happened to the Egyptians, opposed to what happened to them, and then being told that we have to leave now, what would have how could idol worship have been stronger than, than that kind of fear that, hey, the whole world is collapsing here? 
Okay. Um, if I'm following your question, I'm, I'm not positive that I am, but, but, you know, there's something very interesting about people who, um, I'll tell you something that happens uh, with reporters all the time, okay? This is, this is a known thing. Um, reporters say that they're going to uh, cover a story, right? But really what they're doing is they already have the story in their mind that they're going to write from, from the very outset. And what they do is they talk to the person just to get a couple of quotes to fill in the story that they're already going to write from the outset. This is, this is a known thing. This is a known thing. So in other words, and a lot of times you see in religious conversations, people sometimes ask questions, and they ask questions, and it has the illusion that they want to know or that they're interested. But their asking of the questions is really just a form of criticism and attack. Right? They're not interested in, in the answers because they've already made up their mind. And they're not asking a question because they have an open mind and they want to learn something. Okay? So from this you see something very scary, which is that if a person has already decided the way everything is, and now I'm sort of revisiting your, your question, the circumstances of why idol worship was holding us back, right? If you, if you understand idol worship as, as sort of like the way of the world, as the plagues are coming in, they're just reinforcing your previous understanding. How's that? Okay, so this is the God of this is, is taking his vengeance, and the God of that is taking his vengeance, and the God of this is taking his vengeance. In other words, if a person isn't open to learning and receiving and, and, and really being in this place of humility, then all outside events do is reinforce your previous understanding. That's happening today with climate change. It's never stopped happening from the beginning of time. It's never stopped happening from the beginning of time. So this is why they say that um, if a person, this is why they say that the Torah was given in the desert. Because they say if you want to receive the, the Torah, you have to make yourself like a desert. You have to make yourself like nothing. You have to make yourself like an open vessel. Right? Th this, is, this is a level of humility that is often very hard to come by. Right? To be able to receive. Right? But if you just contemplate the fact that you certainly didn't create the world, much less create yourself, so what is this elaborate, infinite, amazing construct in front of you, you know, that isn't just flipping over and changing in front of your eyes every single second, but there's some sort of continuity to it, and you have nothing to do with it, and it's this ongoing miracle that's taking place in front of your eyes, that should create a very awesome level of humility to be able to receive then you just have to make sure that you're receiving the truth. Right? So, I have one more question. In terms yeah. of, like, Hashem controlling nature and us being co-architects, Yes. that relationship I find is really fascinating because someone brought up climate change today, for instance. Yeah. So, on one hand, we have to believe this is all part of Hashem's plan, Hashem's complete control. But the other hand, we influence that control. Correct? Because we're the co-architects. So, yeah. 
how are we supposed to, when we see something like this, that we really don't know if this, like, you know, you have some people who claim that we're destroying the world by, you know, not by all the plastic we're using, all the greenhouse gases and everything, and then some people are claiming that this is really just the natural cycle of the world. And some people, you know, combine the two, we're hastening it, et cetera, et cetera. So, as Jews who are all gathering here, is the answer just to Davin? Or do what we believe is right? Like, how are we supposed to... Yeah, it seems like you have to take, you know, there's there's a certain sort of um, uh, premise, which is that you have to sort of like um, respect Teva, right? You have to respect the nature of the world. And that goes, uh, for instance, for business. Like, I, I remember I, I asked a rabbi one time, um, should I... Should I do this or can I do that? And he said, what do people normally do? And I said, they normally do that. And he said, then that's what you should do. In other words, you have to respect industry standards. And if there are also, um, if there are also uh, you know, information that we're getting from the scientific world that's considered reliable, you know, even if it's maybe debated by some people, but if it's considered reliable, we have to take it seriously, and then we have to just go from there. And at the same time, it, like realize that Hashem is taking care of us, Always. but it's up to us Always. to make it better, so to speak. Always. And, you know, I heard a, a rabbi say something interesting, which is that he was saying, like, yeah, it seems like the world is expiring. And, and, and he said, yeah, but there is an expiration date on the world. <laughs> so, you know, Mashiach, right. So, I mean, it's sort of like if we are running out of resources, that sh perhaps in that context shouldn't be that surprising. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the the the, the, the Jewish endgame vision is one of destruction or anything like that. But just the idea that the clock is winding down doesn't seem to it seems to make sense on some level. But you know I would caution making too strong a correlation there. But nonetheless, thematically, there's a, there's an interesting point there. Um, yeah. <laughs> 